Retired Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson's last positions in government were as Secretary of State Colin Powell's Chief of Staff between 2002 and 2005. He was the Associate Director of the State Department's Policy Planning Staff under the directorship of Ambassador Richard N. Haas, a member of that staff responsible for East Asia and the Pacific political, military, and legislative affairs. Before serving at the State Department, Wilkerson served 31 years in the U.S. Army. During that time, he was a member of the faculty of the U.S. Naval War College. Wilkerson says the crisis in Ukraine is actually small potatoes compared to the real crisis facing the United States and Russia. What to do about the lack of negotiated agreements regarding nuclear weapons? It's a long story. <laughs> it's a complex story, but it's basically a series of errors that the United States made, big errors, strategic errors, geopolitical errors. And it started big time with Bill Clinton in his second term, uh, actually just before it, because he was faced with the potential for Colin Powell to be in the race. He was faced with losing, in other words. And he was searching around for foreign policy areas where he could shine. And one of the ones he found, unfortunately, sadly, was a wild NATO expansion. And so it took off there. It had no consideration whatsoever for the waves that it was sending towards Moscow. It had no consideration whatsoever for the hypocrisy that uh, would affect the United States from that moment on. Indeed, it affected it from Bill Clinton's first term on. Um, that hypocrisy being vivified with the attack on Serbia that quote, liberated Kosovo and started Putin on the track of understanding that the United States, in particular, NATO in general, but basically, you know, Putin doesn't look at NATO. He looks at the United States of America. That's the only thing that matters to him. And when we essentially took out one of his allies uh, and and then claim that Kosovo is an independent entity, an independent state in the world, it made him very angry. And I don't, I really don't blame him from his perspective. I have no love for Putin. I have no love for his technique of leadership, sending nuclear pellets to kill people and that sort of stuff. But he's got a legitimate gripe as a leader of a state that's being affronted by the United States. Um, so, NATO expansion then took off, so much so that my president, George W. Bush, went to Tbilisi, Georgia, of all places, and stood by the president, the young Saakashvili, and said that Georgia would be a member of NATO in the not-too-distant future. Well, Putin reacted and took two oblasts from Georgia, invaded, and took them. I don't blame him. Um, look at a map. Look at Georgia. Look at where Russia is. Look at where Georgia is, and look at what the United States was trying to do. No matter how much we try to assert that what Putin is doing, what Moscow is doing, it's really better to look at it as Mother Russia. What Russia is doing is what any great power would do, especially one who's lost its great power status to the villain on the other side of the Atlantic, Washington. And they reacted. And now they're reacting with regard to Ukraine, which is even more serious, really, if you look at it carefully, than Georgia was. Um, so 
this all came about, and I've left a lot out, but this all came about due to a series of strategic errors by the United States, and now we're trying to make up for them. And I, I found it really laughable tonight that we're talking about bipartisanship. Mitch McConnell is on the same sheet of music as Joe Biden. Bipartisanship. Look at what we achieved bipartisanship over. War. Another freaking war. We've been at war for 20 solid years. What hypocrisy this is. We accuse Putin of doing things that we've been doing for 20 years. The New York Times the other day ran a piece where the journalists talked about how many violations of state sovereignty Putin had made, how many borders he was contemplating crossing or would cross and so forth. What have we been doing for the last 20 years in Iraq, in Syria, in Libya? I mean, we're just getting back what we started. Uh, so that's why it's so hypocritical what we're saying and doing right now. And like I say, it's laughable that we find the only issue we can be bipartisan over is another damn war. How could we have a situation where the United States spends nearly $800 billion a year in defense, Russia $80 billion in defense, and they have – uh, you know, I, I don't know if you agree with this, but I've been reading they have basically three 1980s era um, anti-missile ships out there holding off the whole U.S. Navy because they're afraid well, to even not, go go buy them because they say yeah, them. Not, yeah, go ahead. That, yeah, that's not really really quite true. <laughs> Our Navy so dwarfs the Russian Navy that it's it's pitiful. I mean, Admiral Burke on a webinar, who commands more naval forces than anyone in human history, even more, relatively speaking, than Nelson commanded at Trafalgar. Um, he, he said, I have allies. I have allies all over the place. And he does. He has naval assets just that dwarf Russia's. But we are not in a position right now, and we shouldn't be in a position right now, to take on Russia in terms of uh, naval warfare or any other warfare, because we're opening up Pandora's box by doing so. We have so many other issues right now with Russia, not least of which, in fact, foremost of which, is nuclear weapons. We abandoned the ABM treaty. We abandoned the INF treaty. We were getting ready to abandon uh, New START under Trump. Uh, miracle that we saved it. We left the Open Skies Treaty. We're the ones who've destroyed nuclear weapons arms control. My president, George W. Bush, started it with the ABM Treaty, and that started poking our fingers in Moscow's eyes. Absolutely absurd what we've been doing, and so it's absolutely absurd now that we're claiming that these conditions that exist, which we largely created, are anathema. We can't stand them. We've got to do all manner of things about them. Now, that said... Ukraine is a problem right now. It, it, it's an immediate tactical problem. Right. Putin, Putin might stop. I think he will. He's a smart guy. Uh, that's no, no accolade to him. It's just recognition of reality. He's smart and we're stupid. Um, just look at the last few years. We've been stupid. He's been smart. Every arrow we've made, he's capitalized on, whether it's in Syria or in Ukraine. But if he stops with just consolidation of his more or less control of the two westernmost oblasts in Ukraine and maybe carves out a corridor down to Odessa and, and that he stops, he doesn't get any more involved in Ukraine's business, then we should recognize that tacitly, not necessarily openly, but tacitly, 
and we should begin to negotiate over more serious things like nuclear weapons. Let the thing fester for a while. It will eat Putin's lunch if he tries to do anything more than that. If he tries to go completely into Ukraine and take the whole state, he's finished. He's done. In two years, he'll look like us after two years in Iraq. But the problem with that is we have deep financial reserves. We have deep economic reserves. He has nothing. So he'll be in a situation where the Russian people will throw him out on his ears. The oligarchs will throw him out on his ears because he was bought Russia to such dire economic circumstances. Do you think the protests that we're seeing all over Russia, and there's been 2,000 arrests almost and thousands of people, much very unexpected, do you think that's significant or means anything? I, I do. I do, because one of the reasons he's done this and one of the reasons he's been doing these sorts of things all along was not just it's in his strategic interest to do that, in Russia's strategic interest, but because it was popping up him politically. His polls were raised 10 or 12 points every time he did something against the United States because basically the Russian people see the United States as having raped, pillaged, and plundered them. And basically they're accurate. From about 1997 on, they're accurate. Anatoly Chuba, Bob Rubin, and Larry Summers literally ran a fire sale in Moscow and sold off all the old assets from the communist Soviet Union for a, for a fire sale price and made enormous monies off the fees. Harvard's endowment went from about five or six billion to over 19 billion almost overnight. Not for nothing was Larry Summers made president of Harvard. So they've got a lot of problems with us, and I don't blame them for having those problems. But at, in, at the end of the day, we're now at a position where I think the Russian people are beginning to realize how much Putin is individually taking them into situations they don't need to be in. And so, like I said, if he were to try to take all of Ukraine, try to swallow the whole state of Ukraine, 230-some thousand square miles and 44 million people, he'd be in far worse shape than we were in Iraq in 2003. Once the insurgency started, we were beaten in Iraq. Putin will be murdered in Ukraine, and he'll collapse, and Russia will be in real trouble economically and financially. So I do hope you think so. You think here? Do you think that Ukraine will survive as a country after this? Well, it's going to survive. Uh, like its government, for example, Hitler, not collapse. Hitler, Hitler, Hitler put forty Wehrmacht divisions into the Balkans, Yugoslavia, into that area, and he couldn't control it. And Moscow is going to control it with the few troops that they have. This is not a lot of troops. In fact, it's about the same amount of troops that we put in Iraq. And look what we did in Iraq. And Iraq was a much easier problem, mostly desert, very subject to air power. Ukraine is not desert. It's not very subject to air power. You can use air power, but it's it's not going to be that effective. And if you really go to guerrilla warfare, whoever is the antagonist is going to be beaten royally. So it's not in Putin's interest to continue this to the point where he develops a warfare situation like that. It's in his interest to stop, to consolidate the gains that he's made, and then start talking. And I hope what he starts talking about is not just Ukraine, but more important issues like nuclear weapons. We're confronting a situation with nuclear weapons that's so serious right now that we're approaching being, if not already in, a situation like October 1962 when Khrushchev tried to put missiles in Cuba. We have no arms control. 
We have nuclear weapons bristling all over the world. Now we have them in North Korea. We have them in India. We have them in Pakistan. We have them in Israel. None of those people are in the nonproliferation treaty, even in a meaningful way. And we're just sitting here cavalierly building more nuclear weapons. China's being compelled to build more. China only has two or 300 nuclear weapons. We have 8,000. Russia has 8,000. China's making a decision to build thousands more because of what we've done and what Russia's done. We need to get a handle on this. And you don't get a handle on this much bigger existential problem of nuclear weapons by focusing on something as penny and as Ukraine. Right. So why are we focusing on the U.S.? Well, this is another question because some people have said because of how I think the president even made an, a, an aside about this, that the during his speech today, that Putin has greater, uh, greater uh, things in mind than just Ukraine. And I've heard it said that maybe because of the way he does wars, he likes to do things big when he does them and bite off, you know, a huge amount in one shot as fast as he can. Like he's done that before that maybe he might use this to go and grab the Balkans. I'm not the Balkans to grab the uh, Baltic States. Baltics. Yeah. Yeah. The Baltics. Well, he grabbed two, he he grabbed two old blasts in Georgia and I don't blame him for doing that because my president was sitting there in Tbilisi saying Georgia would be a member of NATO shortly. I don't blame him at all for doing that. Uh, and now he looks like he's going to grab two and maybe a little bit more in Ukraine. That's not a whole lot of aggrandizement. It's not even as much aggrandizement as we've done in Libya, Syria, Iraq, and all over the, the Middle East. Um, so I don't see that in Putin. And I find it absolutely laughable that the only thing we can find to be bipartisan about, look at Mitch McConnell today, for example, is another damn war after 20 years of stupid wars, we finally find bipartisanship over another war. You were there, you know, you were in the uh, inner sanctum of the government, the highest levels in the executive branch, and dealt with these people. Uh, explain it to us, because I, I'm not the only one asking about this. Uh, many people have said this to me. Many people who aren't political scratching their head. What's going on? How come the government is so unresponsive to the people and going off and doing all this crazy stuff? Well, in both cities, Moscow and Washington, President Obama in the Roosevelt Room, sitting across from me with John Kerry on his left when he was Secretary of State, looked at me and he said, there's a bias in this town towards war. Let me say that again. This is a direct quote from the President of the United States in the seventh year of two administrations. There's a bias in this town toward war. Then the President spent the next 30 minutes telling me he didn't know what to do about it. There is a bias toward war in Washington. There's a bias toward war in Moscow because of Putin, but in Washington, it's because of the military-industrial complex. It's because so many people from the Congress, particularly the two armed services committees, to the complex itself, Lockheed, Grumman, Boeing, Raytheon, United Technologies, I could go on and on, make such a lot of money Halliburton in Iraq and Afghanistan made $44 billion. When you make that much money off war, you're going to have more war. That being 
what what's what's the way out of this? It sounds like which do you think it's more like? Is this a situation that's more akin to World War Two? Uh, some people said that to me, or others are saying it's akin to World War One. Are we uh, stumbling into it like we did in World War One because of uh, profligate arms uh, manufacturers who needed to make a lot of gunpowder, like Dupont, or are we? Uh, is it like World War Two, where people are trying to uh, crush or increase nationalism according to their, you know, political designs, and it gets out of control? Well, I'm not one that goes looking for historical analogies to explain what is much more complex than the simple analogies would support. Um, I, I think history changes, and I think it's very different. Um, history often repeats itself, some people say. Uh, I agree with Mark Twain. It doesn't repeat itself. Maybe it's a farce the second time around. Um, what we have today what we have today is a situation, I think, that is pregnant with the possibility for a wider war because of essentially a couple of things that a lot of people aren't thinking about. One is the prospect for China to look at this situation and think that it has an opportunity to move. And when I say an opportunity to move, I mean an opportunity to absorb Taiwan, which you could do in 48 hours, in my view. Um, I'm not so sure that were it to put the right message on the street in Taipei, that the leadership in Taiwan wouldn't say, okay, fine, don't do anything. We're your 19th province or whatever the hell it might turn out to be, because the pressure would be so enormous that Taiwan would be stupid not to not to do that, uh, to mount an, a defense, as it were, militarily for Taiwan is probably a, a prospect doomed to failure. So that could happen, or it could turn into a bitter war there, too, and the United States would be ill-prepared to go over there. I've played the war games. I've participated in more than 20 war games where this is a scenario, and try to defend Taiwan, and yet there are some people in the Congress who would be the same way about Taiwan that they're now being about Ukraine. Taiwan even has a little bit more credibility as a, as a strategic interest in the United States than Ukraine. So that's one way it could be wider and it could be big and it could be, in essence, another world war if China were to suddenly move and we were to try to do something about it. The end of that in every war game I have ever participated in turns out being nuclear weapons. And thank God, the civilian leadership of the war games that I participated in always turns to the generals and says, nope, we're not going there. Stop the war game. Nah, I don't know if that would happen in the real world. Once we had been attrited heavily, our Navy uh, sunk ships, sunk carriers, and so forth, Chinese Navy would be virtually dead. Our air forces would be similarly hurt, and we're staring at each other. We're not going to mount an invasion of China, and China is sitting there badly wounded. We go to nuclear weapons. We don't want that scenario. So that's one way we could get to it. A second way we, would get, we could get to it is to force Russia and China together in such a way that they combine their assets, which would be somewhat formidable, particularly with China in there, and they start something – that is based on some provocation that we give them, like, for example, Ukraine. Um, so 
there are ways you could construct a, a wider conflagration out of this and ultimately a nuclear exchange. Um, I would prefer not to do that, but there are unfortunately ways it could happen. It's hard to believe. I mean, when you say that, I mean, every child knows, you know, even children know that nuclear weapons would destroy the world. I think it's the first thing you learn, you know, in third grade, uh, how we tell each other, the kids tell it to each other. And they, you know, I remember I played, I thought I was a teacher and it was fifth graders. And I played one of those YouTube films of one of the nuclear tests, the big IV nuclear tests, the first one. And I thought the kids would be scared or you know, I was a little worried about it. And the kid goes to me and he says, oh, we already knew about that. So that being the truth, the, the situation, how could grown men who were supposed to be trained in the best universities and are military men and women and stuff make this mistake and destroy the world? Well, unfortunately, we seem to have forgotten about 50 years of history. And I was struck by this when Powell and I, when I was special assistant, when he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, we're really fighting a movement within the government to revitalize nuclear weapons as military useful, militarily useful weapons. Now we, we, I think we won. We successfully with HW Bush, who thought that was anathema. Um, we, we won against the complex that supports nuclear weapons today. I think what's happened is in both Russia where they developed tactical nuclear weapons that they say in their official doctrine, in their published doctrine, military doctrine, they say that they will use small-yield nuclear weapons to blunt a NATO incursion into their territory. In response to that, we have said we're going to build, build, and we did it in the last nuclear posture review. I hope Biden's, which is just being completed, refutes this. But in the last one before Biden did his or is doing his, we said we were going to counter that and build our own nuclear weapons, and we were even going to put them on ballistic missile submarines, tactical nuclear weapons on ballistic missile submarines in order to counter Russia's weapons. So we've come back to the early 50s again where we had generals, and we now have generals and admirals who actually think small-yield nuclear weapons are usable and that they can restrain that use to just those weapons. That is to say we won't escalate. Well, all the academic and theoretical and other talk and discussion and writing about nuclear weapons for the past 70 years has shown that's stupid. You can't stop escalation once you start new, using nuclear weapons. You know, the Russians just say, okay, we're going to use four or five of these small yield nuclear weapons and we're going to hit you with them. And oh, by the way, you shouldn't respond. Oh, we're going to respond, and then they're going to respond, and then they're going to re it's, it's an endless escalation. We had this deal in 2002. You, you won't believe this. We actually had the possibility of exchange of nuclear weapons between Pakistan and India. We put people on airplanes immediately, flying to Delhi and flying to Islamabad. We found such a naivete in both capitals amongst the military and the civilian leaders that we were appalled. We started lessons in escalation theory in both capitals. We sold them permissive action locks for their weapons. They had none. That just means you have to have two keys to release the weapon. We told them, we asked, for example, General Musharraf, President Musharraf in Islamabad, uh, okay, you're going to shoot 20 nuclear weapons at Delhi. What do you think they're going to do back to you? Well, they're going to be cowed. 
No, they're not. They're going to shoot 40 back at you, and then what are you going to do? Well, if they shoot 40 back at us, we'll shoot 60 back at them. Right. You just demonstrated escalation theory. Now, let me tell you why that's stupid. And we spent weeks lecturing both capitals and both militaries and civilian leaderships. And thankfully, I think we prevented a nuclear war at the time, plus we taught them a little bit, and we gave them some equipment that would help them control nuclear weapons in the future. But that's how fraught with danger it is with these people who uh, essentially look at Kim Jong-un in in Pyongyang, North Korea. He has absolutely no idea what it's like to contemplate the use of nuclear weapons and probably is the most likely dude on the face of the earth that might actually initiate their use if he were going down or something. So we have a really – we have a significant problem in the world. We've forgotten everything we learned during the Cold War. What's the way out of this from your perspective? On my side, I I do a lot of work with activists, and the activists are divided, terribly divided. They're as divided as anybody. Uh, They don't know whether, you know, NATO is the threat and they should uh, back Russia or if invading another country for any reason is a bad idea and should be opposed because that'll just have other people do it or they'll do it again. Uh, So uh, everybody's together and they're having a peace march together or on the internet on Saturday, but I don't think anybody has a way out. Well, there's some fundamental precepts here. I think they're operative. I, I, you know, I tell people this all the time. I was talking with a guy in New York tonight about it. First, no more war, no more war by anyone. Don't tell me you have justification for the war. You don't killing people for state purposes is stupid. If we haven't learned that in the 20th and early part of the 21st century, then we are stupid and we deserve to be eliminated. We being the human race and maybe the climate's getting ready to do that. So that's the first point. War is stupid. War is not the answer to put it in the terms of the Quakers. The second point is wars that develop like the one in Ukraine or like the one that might develop over Taiwan or the one that might develop over the South China Sea are going to lead inevitably to nuclear war. That's the end of the human race. So that's the second point. You don't want any more wars, and you definitely don't want those that develop scenarios where nuclear weapons might be used. And the third point is, hey, we have two fundamental crises that are confronting us right now that are going to eliminate us from this planet. Nuclear weapons, as I just talked about, and the climate crisis. By 2050, the, the, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate uh, Change, is coming out a report on 28 February, just a few days from now. The summary alone, which is the only part of the document approved by every country, every single country approves that. The summary alone, but the body of the report in its technical section also just scares the bejesus out of me. It says you don't want to live in a 1.5 degree centigrade increase world. It'll be so bad. You'll have to adapt in so many ways. Your life will be irretrievably changed. You really don't want to live in a 2.0 centigrade increase world. In fact, you won't be able to live. You won't be able to grow crops. You won't be able to walk in the street because it'll be full of water, etc. So 
That is the challenge. The planet, the planet won't give a damn. The planet will go on for another four and a half billion years until it burns out in the sun. But we won't be here. We might want to consult the dinosaurs to see how that feels. That's how serious this crisis is. We're paying very little attention to it. Instead, we're focusing on these little shitty things. So pardon my French. Okay. Like Ukraine. Or like Taiwan. Right. What, uh, just to uh, get back to that issue, um, just uh, as we wrap up, what do you see the next few days bringing? What do you think is going to happen over the next few days to a week? Well, I hope, I, I've i known Joe Biden for a long time. Powell thought when Joe Biden was chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee that he was the best person in the Senate to talk to, in the Congress to talk to, because he knew the issues. He got chewed out by Condi Rice, the national security advisor, because Dick Luger was a Republican, and Powell would never talk to Dick. He talked to Joe, and he told Condi, kind of irritated one day, he said, well, Joe knows the issues. Dick doesn't. So Biden's got a head on his shoulders. Uh, I, I hope he's not too old to use it anymore. I'm, I'm worried about that. But if, if, if his head is operating correctly and he listens to it, then he's going to, you know, say what he has to say to not lose any more ground to the Republicans, to not shave off any more polling points and so forth. But he's also going to fundamentally say, we're not doing anything. We're, we're going to watch this closely. We're going to sanction the hell out of him. I'm going to look like I'm doing stuff. I'm going to look like I'm taking a lot of harsh action. And we're going to take some harsh action. But really, we're going to sit back and hope that he stops where we think he's going to stop and that we can calm this thing down and we can get to more serious issues like nuclear weapons. I hope that's what Biden does ultimately, and I hope the domestic political situation allows him to do that. That's the real concern I have is the Republicans will leap all over him if he shows any angle. Well, the trucks are uh, heading to Washington right now. There's a, I don't know how many yep. people are going to jump on, if it's going to be the same thing. But it's interesting that it's a lot of them are the same people who were there on January 6th are uh, yep. heading here yep. by truck as we speak. And, and just, just just think for a minute about what I'm seeing. You know, I was in this group, two groups, that looked at the 2020 elections hard, looked really hard. We were really worried when we ran simulations. We predicted 6th January might happen. Um, and, and I'm looking at the midterms and, and I'm looking at the next presidential election in 24 and I'm saying, oh, God, the Democrats are going to lose both. Then we're going to have both houses of Congress in the hands of the Republicans who are turned into idiots. And we're going to have the Supreme Court more or less in the hands of the Republicans and the White House. Katie, bar the door there. I think our democracy is forfeit. Very interesting. And uh, this is the question I always ask everybody. The last question is, uh, what do you think would have happened if Donald Trump was president of the United States during this crisis? I think we'd be in even more trouble than we already are. <laughs> I, I, You know, to me, Trump was always three things. One, a man who lived off debt and had not a penny to his name, really. Two, a mafioso. And three, a liar. Uh, that sort of person being president of the United States, I know we've had some bad ones. I know we have. I've studied the presidency all the way back to the beginning. We've had some really bad ones. But Donald Trump was the worst we've ever had. 
you think he'd get along with Putin because they're both sort of like the gangster thing, you know? Putin is always like uh, showing himself as the tough guy. There's something right out of both of them are sort of out of the Godfather or the Sopranos. You're right there, but I think Trump's affiliation with Putin was more that the oligarchs had bailed Trump out way back there when, and he was indebted to them. I would even say that Trump was not an agent of the Russians. He was agency of the Russians. And what I mean by that is he was influenceable. Right. All right, Gray. Well, it seems like, uh, you know, speaking of the mafia, the Italians would have done it with a lot more class my opinion yeah <laughs> cosa nostra would have done it with more class that's for sure <laughs> absolutely let me ask you just to lay out for us your resume well i spent 31 years in the u.s army the last 12 years at the highest levels of the army including special assistant to the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff colin powell for four years um and then i worked for powell as a private consultant for three years and then i joined him at the state department i was uh policy planning and then associate director of the policy and planning staff under ambassador Richard Haas. And then he asked me in 2002 to be his chief of staff and I became his chief of staff and was that until 2005. And I've taught this government business, national security decision-making specifically at the college of William and Mary and at the George Washington university for the past 16 years. All right, great. Anything you'd like to add, anything missed? I'll add this. I certainly hope that what I said about Biden and cooler heads prevailing actually turns out to be the case because this could be a mess if it isn't.